Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, Cynical listeners. We've got a special treat for you today, the debut episode of a new podcast on our network, which we are including at the top of this week's show. It's called the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China Podcast, and it was created by our friends at the Pan Daily, a new China-focused tech news website. We think you're going to love the hosts, Ray Ma and Ying Lu, who both live in San Francisco and have a great deal of experience in the China tech scene. They're smart, insightful, and as their producer, I should add, very easy on the ears. They'll be talking about the big tech stories in the news each week, and we hope you'll subscribe to their podcast. Find a link to it on the SubChina website, or search for Pan Daily, P-A-N-D-A-I-L-Y, on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. This week's Cynica, by the way, is with Joanna Chu of the AFP, and she's going to be talking about how she went undercover to ferret out dealers and endangered wildlife in Hong Kong, and that follows right after the Tech Buzz China podcast, so don't miss it. Enjoy. The President's key economic team goes to China. Uh, after a whole night thinking, I say, I still want to do it. Welcome to Tech Buzz China by Pan Daily, powered by the Seneca Podcast Network. We are a new weekly podcast focused on bringing you the most relevant, interesting, and buzzworthy headlines in China tech. We are part of Pandaily.com, a new English language site that tells you everything about China's innovation. Let me introduce myself again for those of you who are just tuning in. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Ray Ma, and I live in San Francisco. I'm an angel investor, entrepreneur, China watcher. And super excited to be recording this episode with some brand new professional podcasting equipment. Seriously, guys, you should see us right now. We're in a soundproof studio with like real mic stands and stuff. I'm feeling like a boss. Awesome. I'm Yingying Liu. I'm your other co-host here, and I'm also an entrepreneur and a China watcher. We're recording this episode while the Pan Daily team's on three different continents this week. Our fearless leader Kevin is in Paris. I am so jealous. We are getting lots of helpful feedback and even some fan mail from you guys. So shoutouts to Jason Lin and Michelle Kosak for taking the time to drop us a line. We really appreciate it. All right. So this week we decided to go big. We are tackling two really ambitious stories. Are you guys ready? The first is on the ban of U.S. chip companies to sell to Chinese telecom equipment and systems company ZTE. The second is on a topic near and dear to our hearts, which is the report that's come out about sexist hiring practices in China. Right. So as Yingying said, the first story is going to be on ZTE. Many of you might have already heard about the recent seven-year ban the U.S. government announced on sales of American components to ZTE. 
The reason that was cited is to punish the company for not living up to the commitments it made last year when it violated U.S. sanctions and sold products to Iran and North Korea. So, for reference, it was already fined over one billion dollars back last year. Ouch! But there's evidence they didn't really take that fine too seriously, and you know, instead of fixing their practices, they actually rewarded the employees who made those deals and even published a handbook on how to get around the rules. Yeah, let that sink in. Now, there's plenty of English language articles you can read on this whole ordeal, and especially on how it fits into the greater story of this brewing U.S.-China tariff war. But we aren't going to cover that today, are we, Yingying? Nope. We wanted to focus on some different perspectives, so things that haven't been covered as much. But if you're interested in, for example, expert commentary with an emphasis on politics and macroeconomics, you should check out our producer Kaiser Quo's show over at the Sinica Podcast. That's spelled S-I-N-I-C-A, or Macropolo, which is a think tank, or Bill Bishop's excellent Sinocism newsletter, also spelled with an S, which is also published weekly on Axios. Yep, we know all of those folks, and they're seriously really, really awesome. But back to the story. We want to tell you about the Chinese tech community's reaction to the ZTE ban, and oh, let me tell you, it's not been pretty. <laughs> you mean beyond the fact that the stock had to be halted from trading, and it only has two months worth of inventory left, and the fact that its eighty thousand employees are at risk of losing their jobs? Yeah, those things. So the consequences for ZTE have been dire, but it's not really just about this one company. There's been like this palpable shift that's taken place over the past week or so in Chinese tech media. I mean, the Chinese interwebs are flooded with a huge number of op-eds on how this is a wake-up moment for China tech. Not just any awakening, a very, very, very rude one. It seems that most people, myself included, had not realized how extensively China relied on core U.S. semiconductor technologies. Sure. China has been the manufacturing center of the world, but what it's really good at, it seems, is putting everything together—the brains, the advanced integrated circuits or chips that go into everything. Well, that's still dominated by other countries, including the U.S., Japan, Korea, and even Taiwan. Almost anywhere but China, it seems like. Well, Ray, I didn't know that either. I guess it's obvious in retrospect, but you're basically saying that many of the advanced electronics we buy—and I don't mean very simple things like my hair dryer, but including smartphones and enterprise-grade telecom equipment—actually have American chips that are sold to Chinese companies, who then put it together and sell it right back to us. And you're saying that Chinese people are uncomfortable with this because they've been used to thinking of themselves as tech leaders. They thought everything was made in China these days. Yep, exactly. I remember a time when China really looked to the U.S. for tech leadership, but in the past few years, I'd really have to say that attitude had really shifted. So, in terms of software, especially consumer internet, I'd say that since 2016, many Chinese entrepreneurs and investors think it's Silicon Valley that's actually behind, and that China is a world leader. Even in newer sectors like fintech, blockchain, and autonomous vehicles. The overwhelming sentiment is that China is world class, if not number one. The thing is, with both Alibaba and Tencent hovering around five hundred billion dollar market caps, not that far behind Amazon and Facebook, maybe they're right. Either way, it's the first time in several years that I've seen any commentary to the effect of, "Wow, we are definitely not first. We're not even close." Yeah, ouch. That can't feel good. 
I do agree with you, though, that China has built up such a strong narrative of tech-enabled growth that it's hard to see beyond the story sometimes. And if you just listen to stories like the one we did last week on Pindodo, it's really hard to see otherwise. But this ZTE fiasco is having a negative impact on the confidence of the Chinese tech industry, huh? How bad is that, Ray? While state-owned media has, of course, been doing damage control, other media have gone more in the direction of, "Hey, we are just like that story of the emperor's new clothes. We're actually wearing nothing at all." Meaning, we ain't got squat when it comes to the really important stuff like microchips. And so, there's a genuine sense of panic and anger. A few themes emerge here. I think a dominant complaint is that not enough money has been invested in "quote unquote" true innovation. And has been poured into frivolous pursuits like bike sharing and food delivery. Yikes! It's true that I have seen some negative public sentiments against the extremely unprofitable and capital-intensive on-demand or sharing economy startups. I mean, if you haven't seen these photos of the thousands and thousands of damaged, discarded OFO and Mobike bikes, look them up now. It's really hard not to feel disturbed. Yeah, and while I see where these complaints are coming from. They're not objectively true. China has spent and will be spending billions of dollars on semiconductor investment. For example, there is a 31.5 billion dollar government fund established just for investing in integrated circuits. There are also 22 fabs being built in China right now, all costing several billion dollars. And personally, I see aggressive Chinese investment in chips, and not just recently. For example, on the private capital side, Alibaba has invested in or purchased five chip companies in the past few years. I'm also personally advising an American chip startup, actually introduced to me by you, Yingying, and there was generally more interest from Chinese investors than U.S. ones. And that was all before the CTE story broke. It definitely feels like there's more money allocated to this space in China than here in Silicon Valley. So, if it's not a question of money, then why is China so behind? I'm reading these reports where many Chinese experts throw out the phrase "thirty years behind." Is that true? I think that time frame sounds overly simplistic. So there's a few things to consider here. The industry is really large and really complex. But yeah, okay. So China is very behind. There are a few commonly cited reasons: misused funds, for one. There's one analysis that claims 60% of government semiconductor funds went to travel and conferences instead of research. Another reason is buying equipment that's just sat there and not been used. So yeah, capital is not always efficiently utilized. But is it really a three-decade gap? I don't know. I find that really hard to believe, actually. Yeah, I guess it's too hard to say. But what I think is unique about this story is that generally most of the tech headlines we talk about are internet focused, and so with the Chinese ecosystem being pretty closed off to foreign companies, we're really talking about companies that don't have much to do with each other. They barely interact, except for sometimes competing in some developing countries, and definitely don't have the interdependent relationship that, say, a Qualcomm and a ZTE have. For context, U.S. company Qualcomm is estimated to supply the chips in up to two thirds of ZTE smartphones. Yeah, as boring as it might seem, we just could not avoid addressing this huge story. It's like a seriously big deal, and it's going beyond semiconductors now. It's about the massive insecurity that's been triggered in China's tech community. Today, for example, I read some warnings about overreliance on Windows. People are really scared that could be taken away as well. 
Will this be the incident that spurs and really kickstarts Chinese innovation in areas that have been lacking, such as semiconductors? Will the Chinese government step in in a big way, kind of like the Korean government did when it fought to wean itself off of Japanese chips? I'm actually going to guess yes, but some others think maybe it's too painful and too late for China to catch up. There's too little talent and infrastructure. What do you think? Let us know. So the other big story this week was about gender discrimination in Chinese tech, specifically sexist job ads. Basically, this all started with Human Rights Watch publishing a report which talked about how they had analyzed more than thirty-six thousand job ads, most of them posted in the last five years. These are job listings from both corporate and government civic sector websites and their social media accounts, including postings by leading tech companies Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. The researchers look for terms that are related to gender preferences, such as men only and suitable for women. Now, not all of these were in tech. A lot of them, like I said, are in the civic sector. But let me read you some of the sample postings. "Quote unquote: These are the goddesses in the hearts of Alibaba employees. They want you to be their coworkers." Goddesses or nuishen in this situation means beautiful women. Here's another one: a social media post from Alibaba calls attractive women late night benefits. So these are attractive coworkers. I mean, I hate to bash on Alibaba here, but another disturbing recruitment video released in 2012 featured a female pole dancer, and this entire montage of female employees just exclaiming, "I love tech boys!" Oh, what? And Alibaba prides itself on having a lot of female execs and customers, even having an annual female entrepreneur conference. I was almost going to attend it. Well, let me clarify that this is definitely not just Alibaba; it's industry-wide. There was a scandalous video of Tencent's annual holiday party where female employees open a water bottle with their teeth while the bottle was, you got it, between their male colleagues' legs. I literally got so upset watching that video. That I cried, and it's it's only a six second clip. Ugh, I only saw a photo of that and could not bring myself to watch the video. But let's still give credit where credit is due, right? Tencent did issue a formal apology, and Alibaba promised to take action, saying it will have a stricter review on recruiting ads. Others have also said they were sorry. Right, they're sorry. They bowed down to outrage in the West. So this story made it onto a ton of media outlets here, and even our very own SubChina covered it. Ray, you were quoted in that Bloomberg piece commenting that gender norms are deeply ingrained and will be hard to change. But I noticed that a lot of Chinese media didn't cover this. Completely opposite our story just now on ZTE, this was just buried in Chinese news. Why do you think that is? Is it just so normalized that it doesn't seem like it's news at all? Actually, we tried to get a quote from an acclaimed female tech entrepreneur in China to address this, but she really downplayed the story and its impact, stating that actually tech is a great place for Chinese women. I mean, there is a lot of coverage on, for example, Chinese female entrepreneurs, but many of these stories really do focus on the women's attractiveness in the headline. Didn't you complain about this to Lulu Chen at Bloomberg about Yanzhi? How it's become totally normal to refer to a person's attractiveness. I mean, the word "yanzhi" or phrase "yanzhi" literally means face value. I've definitely seen lists of high face value female founders floating around. Face first, business second. 
even with the entrepreneur you mentioned, yeah, we asked her reaction to the story and we're hoping for something pretty genuine. But Ray, she she didn't even think it was a problem. Or maybe she just didn't want to offend any potential acquirers. We'll never really know. Wait, wait. I can't believe I'm saying this. And everything we're talking about is definitely really bad. But China isn't exactly failing on all fronts here. So it got a lot better in the years that I lived there, for example. Independent women are now celebrated much more than they have ever been. A few years ago, if you called a female, new hands, which means tough woman, it was totally derogatory. Now it's kind of a compliment. Yeah, I hear you. But it's still bad. I mean, back in 2013, I used to run a recruitment website for blue-collar workers to be matched with employers in China. Most of our ads listed sex, height, age, accent requirements. This seemed pretty routine. Our team came up with the concept of using video interviews, which gave employers the opportunity to evaluate workers' presentation skills. And at the time, it seemed totally normal to me and even helpful to both sides. So I wonder now, looking back, if I was complicit in perpetuating discrimination based on gender and appearance. Even for tech jobs, photos are typically required. But it's not just China where looks matter and females can be used for their looks, right? I know of situations where friends have worked at U.S. tech startups and were asked to stop doing their regular job and go assist with recruiting programmers because, well, they were attractive and female, and it would quote unquote help attract talent. And also, isn't it always touted that the Chinese startups have more female execs than their U.S. counterparts? Well, you know what I'm going to say to that. Many of those women are in admin positions, which don't have as much influence over the company as their male counterparts. I'm not saying that those positions aren't important, but there is this narrative that women can't succeed at other positions because their natural instincts don't allow them to. Yeah, I've heard those sentiments as well. Many investors insist their portfolio companies be structured that way, actually. Right. So how is that going to work in the long run? I mean, I really believe this is important because if we think of technology as a major driver of progress, and in many ways China is leading the world in innovation, then China has to change. And here I will quote Sophie Richardson, Human Rights Watch's China director. These companies pride themselves on being forces of modernity and progress, yet they fall back on such old-fashioned recruitment strategies. And we're just scratching the surface with recruitment too. I feel really sad that I have to quote a foreigner and not a native Chinese person on this. When will there be some awareness from within the system? I don't know, and that's pretty disappointing. Okay, so a part of our mission is also to connect you, our listeners, with other resources in the U.S.-China tech ecosystem. That's why we wanted to tell you about the Global Capital Summit, F50's biannual flagship conference on May 3rd in Silicon Valley. F50 connects tech companies with a community of global investors. To attend, please visit http://f50.io/gcs18 and use the code PANDAILY at checkout for an extra 20% off. That's spelled P-A-N-D-A-I-L-Y. We'll see you there. So to recap, this week we talked about the reaction in the Chinese tech community to the U.S. ban on China telecom equipment company ZTE, and how it's stirring up dialogue around the reality of Chinese R&D. Hint: not so great. 
We also talked about sexist job ads and the current and future state of gender equality in Chinese tech. As always, you can find the stories we didn't get to cover on Pandaily.com. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. Thanks for listening. We really enjoyed putting this together and are always open to any comments or suggestions. You can find us on Twitter at the Pandaily, and my personal Twitter account is Rayma. That's spelled R U I M A. My Twitter is G I N Y G I N Y, kind of an anagram of my first name. All right, we'll be back here same time next week. See you guys later. Tech Buzz China by Pandaily is powered by the Seneca Podcast Network. Pandaily.com is a new English language website that tells you everything about China's innovation. Our producers are Carol Yin and Kaiser Kuo. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's free daily email newsletter to stay on top of the latest news from China, or better still, sign up for SupChina Access to enjoy premium content, free tickets to live shows, and discounts to our other events, including our women's conference, which is coming up in New York on May 14th. See our site for details. Sub China is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Beijing during an all too brief visit to this city, which of course I lived in for over 20 years. Beijing is enjoying a delightful run of blue skies and nice, cool temperatures.、Uh, today we are talking about trade in endangered wildlife in China, focusing on a couple of species in particular, and talking to our friend Joanna Chu, reporter for the AFP. Joanna has written a piece recently about trade in pangolin in this part of the world, and has also reported for a piece about how demand for the swim bladder of a species of flatfish called the totoba t o t o a b a, which lives in the Gulf of California. Has、uh, helped drive that once plentiful fish to dangerously low populations, but has also endangered another sea creature, actually the world's smallest porpoise, the vaquita marina or panda of the sea, so-called because of the dark circles around its eyes. It may be just not getting enough sleep because it's always <laughs> being chased around by evil fishermen. Anyway, some of you may remember when we had Joanna on last year to talk about the list of women specialists in China-related subjects that she helped to create as a resource for reporters. It turns out that it's also an excellent resource for podcasters like like me. So thanks so much, Joanna, and and welcome back to the show. Yeah, welcome back to Beijing, Kaiser. Thanks, man. It's it's great to be here. Yeah,、uh, so、it's、happy. always nice to have you back. Thank you.、Um, so let's start with pangolins or the scaly ant eaters.、Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a really remarkable animal.、Uh, can you tell us about them, where they live, and you know why they're so endangered、mm-hmm. in the first place? Yeah. So I've heard of the name pangolin before, but I had no idea what they look like, and I just searched it online, and these creatures are, look like nothing that I've seen before. Yeah, they're weird. Yeah, they look like artichokes. You know how? No, totally right.、Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know how the artichokes have the scaly kind of.、Um, It's an anteater cross with an artichoke. Yeah, right, definitely,、right. and they're really cute.、Um, the babies are really tiny, and to get around, they kind of ride on the tails of their parents. Uh huh. Yeah, and they're really kind of shy, and when they get scared, they roll up into little balls, and then they look even cuter. 
So yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're probably going to run that photo if we can on the website to, to show what they look like. They're, they're they're really remarkable. So what do people want from them? So apparently, they're scales, which are really just made of keratin, which is the same substance that human nails are made of. Um, those are what makes them so valuable, and that's why. Uh, more than a million of them have been poached from mostly Africa and also Southeast Asia um, and other parts of East Asia, and but mostly Africa. So you, what, you like steam the scales, dip them in Bernays, <laughs> and then scrape them on your little teeth? <laughs> no, I think it's a longer process because they're so hard. Right, right, right. So when I went to these shops in Hong Kong and actually were offered um, to buy some, they showed me scales that were deep fried. Oh, deep fried. Yeah. Wow. I think that makes it easier to ground them down into a powder for okay. tea, tea oh, or wow. soup. Otherwise, oh. like how would you eat like a big chunk of... Horny scale. Nail. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah it's, so it's just keratin, just like human nails, right? Yeah, it's weird because I mean, that rhino horn is exactly the same thing. It's just keratin. It's like pure keratin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so presumably then it actually has no medicinal value. Um, there's no known medicinal value. Uh, what I was surprised of this product in particular is that pangolin scales are promoted as having such a wide range of uses and benefits for anything from helping with your acne to liver disease to even cancer. In southern China, it's mostly quite popular for women who just had babies as opposed to help promote uh, lactation. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I remember that um, there were all sorts of strange foods my wife was supposed to, to eat to promote lactation. I think it was there were some species of fish that that, and then beer. <laughs> I guess we didn't have any pangolin scales handy, but we wouldn't, of course, wouldn't wouldn't have done those. Um, so where are the pangolins actually coming from? They, they they live in in Asia and and in Africa too, mm-hmm. right? So are they being imported into Hong Kong and China actually from? elsewhere in Asia or is it coming mainly from Africa or yeah so for smuggling from elsewhere in Asia such as um, over from Southeast Asia uh, Hong Kong authorities in the recent years they haven't found any Uh so if it exists and they haven't been able to intercept the snub smuggling um, in recent years it's all the pangolin scales have been coming from Africa and many many tons of it and disguised in many ways like such as um, smugglers pretending they're potato chips or putting them in bags and putting other products on top of it. Huh. It's quite easy to smuggle because they don't really have a distinctive smell. Hmm. N- not like they smell some... like potato chips. I mean, they're deep fried, right? Yeah, so, they, they yeah. smell like, you know, nails. So. Yeah, yeah, right, which don't really smell. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're really endangered now. I mean, they actually made, like a year and a half ago, they, they were elevated to the list of most endangered species, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, in September 2016, all 182 member countries of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, uh, CITES, uh-huh. sites, um, everyone agreed to move pangolins into the highest protection category. And that means tra- trade is completely banned. Okay, okay. Uh, so w- when you talk to activists or to wildlife experts, uh, what do they recommend as the most effective means of actually trying to curb the trade in, in pangolin products? Uh, is it on the demand side, you know, through, I mean, like you look at campaigns against uh, elephant ivory or against rhino horn, and I, it seems like they've been pretty, even like shark's fin, they've been pretty successful here in China, the, the sort of uh, demand side uh, campaigns. Or is it maybe stepped up enforcement or, or going after the poachers themselves in Africa? How, how are, what are the activists saying we ought mm-hmm. to be doing? So we were seeing evidence that police in Hong Kong and mainland China have been cracking down. They're trying to 
Um, they have been able to foil smuggling plots and uh, arrest people and seize pangolin products. Uh, what I haven't seen and what activists haven't seen is targeting the demand side and trying to raise awareness um, among people who use tr traditional Chinese medicine that this particular product has, even in uh, among traditional medicine experts, there's no evidence that they have any benefit whatsoever to health. So Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, though, I mean, can they be raised in captivity? Is it possible to just to, to you know, cultivate them domestically? <laughs> I mean, not, not that it would be any less cruel, but... Yeah, well, actually, they it's really hard to, to cultivate them, like, such as on farms, because I think they're partly endangered because they're such kind of shy creatures. Uh, they're very finicky. They get disease really easily and just are generally quite nervous if they're in captivity. Uh. So all these reasons and means that when they're in captivity, such as even in sanctuaries and zoos where uh, caretakers are really trying to help them, the average lifespan is five years. And the natural lifespan is like 20 years. Yeah, right? over 25 or so. Wow, gosh. Like over 20 years usually. So. And they eat ants and termites, right? And that's, that's mm -hmm. their thing. And they're basically like anteaters, right? They've got that long tongue and yeah. like a, a snout and they just basically slurp up ants, right? Yeah. Okay. They're grazing around. Animal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you couldn't just stick them in a in a giant ant farm and have them <laughs> go crazy, huh? That's 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 a pity. Um, uh, you actually went undercover for these pieces that you reported um, on uh, both pangolin scales and these totoa bladders, which we're going to be talking about in a bit. What, what was that like, and and how did people react to you? I mean, I don't know. Not everyone knows what you look like, but you know, you're very tall. Uh, you I, you don't look like my idea of the kind of person <laughs> who would be in the market for endangered wildlife. <laughs> well. So we, we talked last time about uh, diversity and why reporters and experts of diverse backgrounds can bring a lot of value to China research and reporting. So after that, in the process, I was thinking, well, what makes me unique? And one of those things is that I come from a Cantonese background. I was born in Hong Kong. Um, raised in Canada and Vancouver, but went back to Hong Kong a lot. So, so you speak really fluent Cantonese. Well, I speak, you know convincing Cantonese. In Mandarin, I would definitely have a some sort of accent, but in Cantonese, at least I can get by and people won't question um, whether I'm a native speaker right away. So you thought, ah, I can go undercover and try to buy yes. illegal. Yes, I was like, what is happening in Southern China that's illegal? So I'm like, well, I, should, I could go to these stores and check out if they're selling very illegal wildlife products. And I think that's, uh, that's something going undercover is... Uh, legitimate because it's for a public good. It's, yeah, sure, for, mm -hmm. for sure, for sure. And nobody looked at you and thought, huh, what, what is this tall, fair-skinned woman <laughs> who looks, you know, educated and refined doing in the back alleys of, of you know, Kowloon trying to buy illegal <laughs> wildlife? Well, I think people kind of have this, like, really um, romantic, almost traditional idea of who uses traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, but right. actually it's quite, it's still quite, a normal part of daily life in Hong Kong, sure. also in Guangdong, um, different from even the rest of China where people think of traditional Chinese medicine as more like niche. Um, I grew up uh, even in Canada using herbal medicines from um, traditional Chinese medicine shops. Sure, sure. Yeah. We, I think we all did all of those yeah. Chinese backgrounds. <laughs> we all had something, Balangun or whatever. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so these shops uh, are mostly in kind of quite central Hong Kong hot property in Shenwan, which is just uh, oh, wow. 
couple stops away from the main business yeah, district yeah, yeah. in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. so they're able to get these uh, street level shops. They're able to pay rent. So it seems like they do enough business that they see someone walk in who doesn't look like a um, kind of what you think of a traditional Chinese person, and it's still not that suspicious. Okay. <laughs> and so what happened when you when you actually did try to buy? I mean, they they actually had the product. Was it displayed prominently? Were they, mm -hmm. you know, hiding it in the back rooms or what, what happened and, and what was that process all about? So the timing was that I was uh, researching whether Pangolin was still available in Hong Kong and I wanted to go down and, and check some of the stores. And before I, I, I went to your stores, uh, Hong Kong Magazine investigative reporter, uh, Karen Chang, she, she did the same thing where she went around and checked the stores and she was able to find some. And she told me that it seemed like after her story came out in Chinese, uh, some of the shopkeepers seemed to be more cautious. Yeah, that would make sense. So I was worried they wouldn't show me at all. But um, So like, what was your, your strike rate? How many stores did you go in before you found Pangolin? I pretty much went to all of them. There's, um, there's a couple dozen, and, and there's only in that, in that street where... In Shenwan. Uh, yeah, in Shenwan where activists say that there are pangolin my strategy was to kind of act dumb and not even acknowledge that i knew it was illegal uh -huh. so i just went and asked for it and um, being a you know a younger chinese woman uh i i pretended i had just given birth <laughs> <laughs> so i was trying to get in touch with my <laughs> maternal side not having children <laughs> And, and and they they went for it. They bought. I mean, so you, the couple dozen stores, and most of them. Do you think most of them had it, or most of them were willing to sell it to you? So I found two of them that definitely had them. And when I went in and looked at all the products on display, um, I didn't see any pangolin. I had to ask for it. So this first store that I came across that definitely had pangolin. She didn't seem the the shopkeeper did not seem nervous at all when I asked for it. She seemed quite eager to show off her stash of a big stack of deep fried pangolin scales that were bigger than the size of my head. Wow. And she, she, she had it hidden though, right? Yeah, she did have it hidden. She had to spend some time digging through um, some boxes in the back of her shop. What, what would be the legal consequences if she were caught selling that, that quantity? Mm -hmm. It's unclear. Um, in Hong Kong, they, Hong, the reason that you can see so much wildlife smuggling Arriving in Hong Kong and also going through Hong Kong first before going to mainland China is that the penalties aren't as high as they are in mainland China. Uh, okay. But they did amend it so effective next month. There would be a maximum of 10 years if you're involved in smuggling. Or sale of... Sale. Okay. Um, but in the past, even maximum sentences have rarely been enforced. Often people get away with a few weeks in jail or uh, a fine that's not that high. And so. is this stuff really valuable? How much does it cost, for example? I mean, if you wanted to buy, you know, an ounce or like a, what would, I, would I sell it by the jin? Uh, so it goes by uh, the traditional measurement, the tail, T-A-E-L, which uh -huh. is not much at all. It's barely 40 grams. And I was offered deep fried pangolin scales for 500 Hong Kong dollars, which is 65 US dollars just for a little tiny bit. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's still cheaper than marijuana. <laughs> uh, but so the, how much, I mean, does that, is, is that enough to 
see you through a whole, um, you know, the whole year of nursing about child or what, how I don't give, give me an idea of how much pangolin one needs. Mm-hmm. If one's... Uh, so in that uh, second shop, I talked to an older man. He showed me a recipe, a traditional medicine. He showed me a recipe, a traditional Chinese medicine recipe for tea uh, that's supposed to rid talk toxins in your body. And it called for pangolin in scales in addition to so many herbs uh-huh. like juniper and like um, sage and all sorts of random herbs that you <laughs> right. are are totally legal. But then you're also supposed to sprinkle some pangolin in there. Oh, so it's just a little sprinkle. Yeah. Okay. You, you grind it up in a mortar and pestle or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. So, so the second shop I went to, it was harder to uh, convince the owner that I really wanted some pangolin scales. He actually said that there had been uh, a crackdown and it's no longer legal. Uh-huh. But he talked about. Oh, he thought it was legal before. Yeah, he thought it was legal before, and he thought it was. Um, he thought that there was no reason why there should be any protection, because in his view, he thought that pangolin roamed the forests of Asia and Africa. They're just everywhere. You can in great like, quantity. Um, so <laughs> he may have been outdated go. because a lot of this poaching has been happening in the past 10 years so now pangolin is most heavily trafficked and poached mammal in the world oh gosh yeah so talking to him kind of showed that there was a lack of awareness and so you went into like all a a couple of dozen shops Mm -hmm. and then how like in what percentage of them do you think you would have been able to to score pangolin i found two two shops that showed me pangolin and Uh one, one shopkeeper that offered to um, order some for me. Oh, okay. And the rest of them, they said, no, no, no. They're... Yeah. Some of them did look nervous, but some of them looked like they just didn't, didn't have it. Okay. So did you also try to buy pangolin scales in mainland China? Did you cross over into mm-hmm. Shenzhen at all? And, and... Yeah. So after I went to Hong Kong, I went to Guangzhou. Mm-hmm. And there's a big traditional Chinese medicine complex in, in Guangzhou in the city, not too far from the city center. Just, I think, over 100 shops easily. Mm-hmm. And I tried to go to all of them. <laughs> Oh my god, dedicated reporter. <laughs> <laughs> and definitely the whole mood was completely different from Hong Kong. It couldn't have been more different. In Hong Kong people were kind of mm, kind of confused about if they were aware that pangolin was not legal, they'd seem kind of mm, blasé about it. In the mainland, people their reaction was so extreme. Um some people I asked about it in Cantonese in a friendly manner where um in Hong Kong it really worked to uh-huh. Uh, build rapport with the shopkeepers some would be yelling at me like we don't have that what is that um we don't sell that kind of thing it's wildlife and then one person walked away she left her shop i was in her shop and she left her her place of work because she was so nervous that i was asking for this product wow wow Mm -hmm. she thought they were going to get raided or or, i mean so yeah that's that's interesting so they were obviously quite fearful of of the penalties or of, of what law enforcement might mm-hmm. do to them. Yeah, I talked to some NGOs there, and they said that police have done uh, sweeps of, of this market looking for pangolins. So it seemed like the policing in mainland, in Guangzhou at least, was a lot more just fearsome. Effective. Yeah, yeah, effective. What what do the activists generally say, again, uh, as the sort of the best way we should try to go about helping to eradicate this problem i mean um so as far as addressing this um activists and experts promote a multi-pronged approach from uh, trying to figure out where smuggling routes are and cooperating with countries of origin also you know increasing penalties so if you do find poaching and smuggling um, and selling that 
people will actually feel deterred. Um, recently, the mainland amended its wildlife protection law to add more language saying that exploiting wildlife is is wrong. Um, but it is still quite vague. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm curious, did you end up actually buying any or did you just sort of window shop? Um, oh, I never bought any. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what did you say? Like, oh, no, I guess it's a little more more than I want to pay and I'll move on. Well, yeah, the whole time I was like acting like, oh, I have to ask my mom. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I'll take a picture and then I'll show them. And so they let me take photos and then we ended up. Oh, my gosh. So you actually didn't publishing do... the photos. Wow. That's kind of dumb of them. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it kind of shows that. There's kind of impunity, right? I mean, they weren't really worried about much mm-hmm. in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so has there been a reaction to your report? Yeah, a lot of people didn't realize these animals existed. Oh, wow. So That, that was the reaction. <laughs> yeah, so like, wow. <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't realize that the Totoba existed. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can shift over and not talk about the mm-hmm. Totoba and, and mm-hmm. why its swim bladders are, are so sought after mm-hmm. here. Um, so maybe, you know, the same question I asked about the pangolin. Can you describe this creature and, and tell us about, you know, its habitats and, and why it's endangered and why it's so sought after? Mm-hmm. So Totoba is a type of quite a big fish and it looks kind of kind of like an ugly dolphin <laughs> to me. <laughs> it's kind of that long shape and it used to be quite plentiful and they're native to the Gulf of California. Yeah, right? the Gulf of California. So... For a long time, uh, fish bladders, all sorts of fish bladders, were are very popular as a type of soup. Right, um, in fish Chinese. maw soup. Right. Yeah, it's supposed right. to have. It does have collagen. Um, all types of fish bladder has has collagen, which is supposed to be good for your skin. Um, it doesn't have all these um, magnificent properties like pangolin is supposed to have to cure cancer or anything. But people mostly drink it's like oh it tastes good and supposed to be make you have like a youthful glow yeah i mean i've I've certainly had a lot of fish maw soup and it's got that Mm -hmm. nice kind of sticky taste to it that Mm -hmm. kind of like when you like pig trotters or Mm -hmm. or like a a a good ramen broth right Mm -hmm. it's got that kind of stickiness to it that's from the collagen yeah yeah so totoba i have no idea why it's become so sought after it's the same type of bladder essentially as any other fish it might be just because they are so rare. So the price has shot up. And Chinese nowadays, they're not even drinking it in soup anymore. They're displaying it, the dried bladder, in uh, silk boxes and with glass on top. And they're putting it up in their homes because each piece can be um, 20000 US dollars easily. Oh, my gosh. It's a status symbol now. Oh, that, that totally reminds me. I mean, last year, Jeremy and I... Uh, did a podcast where he had talked to a couple of people in South Africa who were working on uh, rhino horn on, on, on a lot of endangered wildlife poaching, mm-hmm. uh, a Chinese journalist and a South African journalist. And for that same show, I had talked to a professor of history named Nicole Barnes at Duke University near where I live. And she specializes in, in Chinese medicine. And she told me something very similar about rhino horn, that it's not actually even used in medicine anymore, that people buy it basically as a you know as a as a status symbol um they gift it to their superiors at work you know if you're mm-hmm. if you're just sort of some flunky and you want to get in good with the boss you buy them a rhino horn and mm-hmm. and, and well that's interesting that so that that seems to be what's driving it now yeah huh? i mean the thinking is that um the more rare and endangered an animal is actually they become even more endangered because their price shoots up 
in the market. Yeah, it's a terribly perverse. And so now, mm-hmm. I mean, people in Mexico who are fishing it, they call it the cocaine of the sea. Mm-hmm. I mean, you not, can... Not that you can grind it up and snort it and get high, but... but, but <laughs> you can make soup. Right, you can make soup. Cocaine soup. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, give me an idea of the price of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said $20,000, U.S. dollars for stuff in a display. How much are we talking? I mean, how many bladders is that? Just a single bladder of a single fish? Yeah, a single bladder. Oh um, one well-formed bladder, heavy. I was offered it in Guangzhou at a shop for twenty thousand U.S. dollars. Oh lord! That and is again, really I'm just—I look like obviously not really similar to a local person. <laughs> not the profile of. And a... I was all frumpy, and my you know shirt was all wrinkled because I was on the road reporting, <laughs> <laughs> and I just believed that I was able to drop that much money on this piece of fish again the advantage of being a chinese reporter (laughs) yeah definitely i think it's part of the idea that um you must be chinese and the idea that i could be a foreigner doesn't really cross people's minds (laughs) despite the evidence showing (laughs) so your 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 piece um talks about how fishing for the totoba in the gulf of california has also really placed the vaquita this Mm -hmm. little porpoise that we're talking about Mm -hmm. in real danger um how is that happening how is the the fishing for the one species endangering the other Mm -hmm. so this is a joint uh investigation with afp colleagues in mexico Mm -hmm. and they Mm -hmm. did um I think more of this dangerous work where they actually went on the waters, which is quite dangerous because poachers, they, they're kind of acting like drug cartels. They go on these boats armed with guns and they're chasing out uh, normal fishermen to to have control of these seas where Totoba swim. Uh-huh. So my colleagues went and talked to some of the activists who are trying to catch these poachers. They're actually out on boats themselves, right? Yeah. The, so there's a U.S. environmental group, Sea Shepherd. They patrol the waters off San Felipe um, in a camouflage ship using sonar and radar to find poaching boats in their nets. Oh, wow. So they, And then they notify authorities. So this is quite dangerous because poachers um, have opened fire on Sea Shepherd drones that are trying to catch them. So Just at the drones, though. Thanks yeah, so not far. to people, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's quite a tense situation because these... Uh, a Mexican uh, marine deployed to the zone said that these poachers go to the sea armed and there are shootouts between rival groups. Oh, wow. So do you think that, I mean, it sounds like cartel activity. I mean, is there cartel money and, and backing behind this? Um, a, an official of Mexico's prosecutor for environmental crimes say it's really highly likely the poachers are funded by drug cartels. Oh, wow. If the poachers aren't part of these cartels themselves, they are most likely funded by them. Wow. Well, what about on this side uh, here in, in mm-hmm. East Asia? Mm-hmm. Are you seeing organized crime activity related to, to wildlife smuggling here mm-hmm. as well? Yeah. So especially the Hong Kong police are quite open with what they find, but they report things case by case. And uh, a mainland Chinese man was caught or a Hong Kong man or a foreign man was caught. And um, as far as I know, they haven't publicized what they found as far as uh, what groups these people are organized in. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, I hadn't heard of the Totoba. I mean, I've, I'd heard about pangolins. and Everybody knows about 
rhino horn. Everybody mm-hmm. knows about tiger bones. Everybody knows about elephant ivory. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe people in China probably know about pangolins, maybe civet cats and some other species. But mm-hmm. I'm sure there are a dozen other species that I'm not aware of that are mm-hmm. being trafficked for various mm-hmm. reasons. Uh, maybe we can help our listeners to be aware of more of the, the kinds of species that... Do you, do you, did you come across any others in, in the course of your research that... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe don't get as much headline attention? Yeah, so the Hong Kong um, the conservation website, they remind people that there's 35,000 different species protected. 35,000 yeah. species. Not just in Hong Kong, but pr- protected under that international convention. Oh, okay. So all these species, are, I'm sure most of us have, don't even know a fraction of them. Sure. Um, for example, um, seahorses. Seahorses are Dried seahorses, um, eel, type of eel. Not the kind we eat in sushi restaurants. Yeah, and still ivory is being smuggled. Yeah, we all know about yeah. ivory, but it's still a problem. Um, and it's not endangered yet, but because there's less ivory in the market, hippo, hippo oh, teeth, hippo teeth, right, are right. kind of being starting to be um, sold as a substitute for ivory. Yeah, right. so yeah. that will also uh, environmentalists worry that that will put the hippo in danger. Wow. Okay. Uh, so tell us about your experiences when, um, you know, you, so you, you found this for sale, you know, in the, in the uh, silk box with the, the, the mm-hmm. gold seals and the wrapper or whatever. But uh, did you, were you able to, to, uh, to procure Totoba from, from other, other shops as well? Mm-hmm. So in Guangzhou, I was mostly trying to look for Pangolin because I had been successful in Hong Kong. So I figured that I might be able to find it in Guangzhou, but I was striking out constantly with looking for pangolins so i decided oh i see some dried seafood shops maybe i can ask about totoba oh. um i thought it would be really unlikely because they're so rare endangered and expensive now um i didn't think these little shops would offer them but the kind of attitude that shop shopkeepers had about totoba was totally different from pangolin if they didn't have them they said oh it's just too expensive now so that's why we don't carry it but we can try to help you find it if you leave your number um, so one shop, I actually found it um, in storage. I, I just strode in and it's a bigger shop. So I guess it had more capital. And I asked about um, Totoba, do you have it? And they, and they looked really happy. They're like, yes, we do, actually. So, <laughs> just got some in. <laughs> so they sent a man uh, upstairs to the private storage area and he brought down like an armful of Totoba, like really heavy dried fish bladders and I mean, that must have been like you know a lot of money's worth. Yeah, he was he was just carrying it in his arms, and later I found out that eight pieces were altogether worth eighty thousand U.S. dollars. Oh my lord! And they just kind of poured some tea for me on this wooden table, um, and we sat across from each other to chat about it, and they just laid it out, just kind of very unceremoniously, just plunked it down on the table, and I'm like, oh, how much is that? It's like, oh, yeah, four thousand U.S. dollars, but that's the worst piece. This one is twenty thousand U.S. dollars, and it's the best because you can see how it looks. So symmetrical and it's heavy and you can touch and feel for yourself so they were really selling it and they didn't look they did this out in the open even though they um kept the totoba upstairs once they thought there was a customer interested they just brought it down to the public shop area and we're really trying to sell it to is this something that's really easily recognizable once you know what it looks like so they look like any other fish bladder. Like we said, fish maw soup is very popular and, and it's not um, an illegal thing. Um, but Totoba, it's... It's big. It's big and it's... They have these tentacles, these these long kind of 
ribbon-like tentacles, and that's the defining feature of uh, that bladder. Okay, okay. So again, I took pictures because I was playing down, like, let me take some pictures to show my relatives to see if it's um, good stuff. And they're <laughs> like, okay. So I, I took the pictures and I showed it to some experts, and they said, by the price and how what they look like, they're, they should be Totoba. And we'll put a link up to your stories, obviously, so that people can see some of these pictures. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I look forward to hearing more about about this. I mean, and and your, your adventures undercover, <laughs> very cool. Uh, and it's it's a uh, it's a real pleasure to have you back on the show, and definitely look forward to having you back again. Uh, before we pack up here, let's let's make some recommendations for our listeners. And before that, I do want to remind everyone that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Join SubChina's premium access program to receive lots of bonus content, including a weekly roundup of the of the week's news. Uh, every Friday or Saturday in China, early releases of the Seneca podcast without any ads, and best of all, an invitation to join our SubChina Slack channel, uh, where you can chat with our editorial team, with Jeremy and me and, and Lucas and Jiayun and Jia, and uh, special guests who we bring on from time to time. And don't forget to leave us a positive review on the iTunes store. Uh, so now on to recommendations. Uh, Joanna, why don't you kick us off? What do you have? Um, so living in China, you think about um, what that does to you both psychologically and physically. <laughs> so I came across a book edited by uh, a leading Chinese criminologist, Borg Backin. Um, sorry if I butchered his name. Um, Backin is the last name. It's called Crime and the Chinese Dream. Uh-huh. And it, it talks about different examples of how Chinese people are pushed into a life of crime because they feel that the Chinese dream of getting rich is out of their reach through conventional means. So they feel justified in um, breaking the laws to try to get what they want. Interesting. Uh, again, can you spell the, the name of the author? Uh, B-O-R-G-E uh-huh. and last name Backen, B-A-K-K-E-N. He edited this collection. Backen, okay. So it really kind of has a different take on what happens when you're under so much strain in China um, and also what happens when other things that some other countries tend to promote, like a sense of civic responsibility and civil society and people engaging and volunteering and charity work. And we know in China, like that is absent or it's very, it's, it's yeah, yeah. a lot more, de, as I always complain about <laughs> more the, constrained. No civic virtue. Yeah. It's so not. what's left is the honest state, support and propaganda to getting rich is glorious and you can achieve the Chinese dream. And some people feel like due to different reasons um, in society, they can't reach the dream without breaking some laws, like right. taking part in some scams. So it's yeah, quite yeah. an interesting read. Related to a, a podcast we recently did uh, with Bruce Rusk and, and Christopher Ray, who translated this book called The Book of Swindles. And if you haven't heard that show, uh, it talks about the late Ming Dynasty, but it's mm-hmm. super relevant to today. Uh, very, very relevant in this age of this current age of swindles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm afraid to pick up my phone sometimes. I mean, half the time it's somebody trying to, you know, obviously trying to swindle me when I'm here in China. It's already happened like six times. <laughs> I just turned my phone back on after being gone for months, and, and, and already it's like, you know. Yeah, it's endless. I don't pick up the phone unless I see the number of someone that's in my contacts. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so my I have a couple of recommendations, and they 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 may not be obviously related to China, but I think that any reader who who reads them both will see why I think that people who are interested in in China's development will will and and issues related to China will will see why. Uh, One is Homo Urbanicus. 
about Viktor Orban uh, by Jan Werner Müller in the uh, April 5th, 2018 edition of the New York Review of Books. Uh, it, it It's a terrifically written piece. It's a review of, of, of course, it's a review, you know, New York Review of Books of, of a book about Orban's life. Uh, but it's, it's very, it's, it's very illuminating about how Orban rose to power, about what he does to stay in power. And again, I think, uh, anyone reading this piece will understand why I'm recommending it on a show related to China. Uh, the second one is called The Right to Kill, and it ran in last month's Foreign Policy. Uh, it's by an author named Clucy de Oliveira, Oliveira, uh, presumably somebody with a Brazilian surname, Oliveira. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's, uh, a, a great piece that looks at the controversy over laws being passed to prevent uh, indigenous tribes in the Amazon from killing uh, disabled children or developmentally challenged children or uh, allowing suicide for elderly people. You know, just basically these things that where you have uh, universal rights, you know, human rights coming into conflict with native traditions. And again, it's a certain relevance to to certain parts of China that I think uh, anyone reading that will 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 pick up on. Uh, terrific reporting, really fascinating ethical conundrum, really interesting story. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that's it. Uh, Joanna, thanks, thanks so much. Yeah, it's great to, to have you on. on. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief and the GGV996 Podcast, which comes out every other week and covers tech and investing in China. Uh, it's a podcast we co-produce with the venture capital outfit GGV. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.